Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 15, where we'll be revisiting the film The Living Daylights. I've got a suggestion for you, Joe. Right wow, off straight off the bat. All straight right. off the bat. Something to mix things up. You know, we don't want to be tired and we don't want to be the same old thing. And we're on episode 15 now, so maybe something different is in order. Okay. Um, so, you know how we're all about the ranking, and at the end we, we rank the films. Yeah, kind of the premise of this whole thing, yeah. Yeah, the whole thing we're doing, right? I was thinking for this film, if we should try and guess where the other person is going to rank it. Oh. Ah. Okay, then. Yeah. Because I feel like this film, it's not the most polarizing, but I do see it ranked quite high. I do see it ranked quite low, quite in the middle. And I, like... When we talk Bond, we're talking Sweaty Sean, we're talking Old Man Roger, we're talking Daniel Craig. We haven't uh-huh. got a nickname for him yet, we'll we'll get on that. Um, <laughs> so, we never talked Timothy Dalton, so I thought it might be fun if we just like both try and guess where the other is going to rank it, and just see how far off we are. All correct. Okay, yeah. Um, you can go first. Oh, you that's go good. First. You try and guess mine. Okay, so I'm looking at your list. I think there's no way you rank it... Uh, below Live and Let Die, Octopussy, and Goldfinger. I think you're probably going to like it more than On a Majesty's Secret Service. I think you probably will like it more than You Only Live Twice, but I think you probably had more fun with Diamonds Are Forever. So I'm going to say you're going to rank it below Diamonds Are Forever and above You Only Live Twice at number 10. Okay. I'm not going to say anything. No, 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 but, we, we but, don't. Yeah. I Make me wait four hours. I, oh, yeah. We'll tease us out. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at your list mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, I'm thinking it's going to be immediately above a lot of the Roger Moore ones. So we're talking above Fear Eyes Only, above View to a Kill, above Moonraker. Once we get more middle-ish, though, Man with a Gun and Gun, Living and Die, I don't know. I think, I think those are good. They're good. I mean, obviously, they're good for you. They're They're... They're in the middle, they're not at the bottom. I don't think it's going to reach anywhere near the heights of, you know, top five or anywhere like that. So I'm going to go with, you're going to put it at, I think you're going to put it below Live and Let Die, but above Moonraker. Okay. Again, I won't say anything. 10, yeah. I will say I have already put it in my rankings. You know, maybe I'll change it. But to me, there's no like, it's not ambiguous. I kind of know what I already think about this film. So I was like, yeah, it goes there. That I feel pretty good about that. Well, it's quite interesting, actually, because right, that bit's over now, right? That game is over, so now I can actually start talking about some of my feelings towards this film. No okay. cheating. Because um, I remember in the last episode, we were talking about A View to a Kill, obviously, and I remember specifically saying that there was a lot of things that wasn't amazing in that film, yet I was still really liking it for some reason. And I think this film is almost the opposite of that for me when I was watching this, where nothing in this film was really that bad. Mm. There were some good parts. There was nothing, there was no no real lows. Maybe not many highs, but no real lows. And yet, it didn't quite click with me in the same way that I thought it would do when you look at it and, and you think, okay, that most of it was good. That so, sounds like a very John Glenn experience, right? <laughs> the John Glenn experience. Like, this is just how he makes his films, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. 
But I feel uh, yeah. like even that is a personal preference because you ranked for your eyes only so high. So obviously that very much worked for you and I ranked it so low. So it's just like, I guess these are just the Bond films he puts out. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I finished watching it and I just thought, hmm, okay. And I didn't really, I was just very middling, very middling opinion of it. It was very strange. I should, I think I should have liked it more. Well, yeah, I think this film, I feel like because Timothy Dalton only do, did two, and License to Kill is the more notable film. That's the one people focus on. Yeah. The head and this popping. one is kind of, I think it's meant to be solid. But again, people kind of focus more on the other one, good or bad, because it's just more interesting. This is just that one that came out after A Few to a Kill. But uh, yeah, it just kind of was, it's just there. But again, I'm sure people love this film. I'm sure there are diehard fans of these films or this one oh, in yeah. particular. There are bits that I really like of this and we'll talk about it later on. But I just, I think I, I just was surprised at how I felt coming away from it off of the back of A View to a Kill, which I really should not have liked as much as I did. And yet I did. That was a fun film. That it was, was fun. fun. It was. Okay. Shall we get into it then? Sure. So, circles, Bond theme. <laughs> but now it's Tim. There's yeah. a new guy. Yeah, and it's it's a very strong start. I think it was a great walk, and it was a great turn and shoot. I think he might be the best actor so far we've seen for the walk and shoot. I just put down that it was very solid, very yeah. solid walk, as you say. Probably, if we're looking into the specifics of the turn and shoot, <laughs> and we usually uh, do, yeah, and we usually do on this podcast, uh, you can't fault it. No, no wobbliness on the knee, no aiming off or like early shooting like Roger Moore. It was all pretty solid. Yes. But I will have to say one of my first notes and was just even just seeing this, it was cool to see a new Bond. It was just after so much Roger Moore, no offense, Roger, but it even in this moment, I was like, this is exciting. That's a different person. <laughs> like, cool. <laughs> I, I was just excited just from this uh, early bit. I got that just a little bit later on, but I know I know what you mean. It was just sort of this, this like giddy feeling of like it's someone different, it's someone younger, it's it's new, it's exciting. Yes, exactly. So this then fades out onto like this beach area, and we see these army barricade, uh, barricades, and we find out a little bit later that this is Gibraltar, which is an island I want to say off Africa, something like that. Maybe it's near Spain. I'm not too sure. Um, but yeah, so it's this kind of army area, looks very World War II, D-Day beachy sort of area. And we cut to M in a nearby building in this army uniform and is explaining to these three men, who we find out are double O agents, uh, that this is a test. And your test is to infiltrate this radar station here in Gibraltar. So uh, we find out these three men and M, I believe, are actually in this big plane going over the top of Gibraltar so the three men in black jump out and start landing on for some reason M like sits down and it's like oh blast I didn't really get what that was about I think it's because all his paper was flying away yeah but then like yeah we really should have seen that coming (laughs) (laughs) come on M you're on a plane what are you doing (laughs) he forgot his paperweight yeah you'd never forget your paperweight rookie mistake is that what the is that the bulldog in like Skyfall and that? Is that is that what that is? Is that a paperweight? Ooh, it could be. Yeah, so you need one of those. Next time. Yeah. Uh so we then see a load of soldiers patrolling 
the radar station and we get lots of shot of the island and it's a really cool shot we get here this feels like very like technically impressive because you get a shot of like behind the three men going down and then you get a really cool shot of gibraltar like below it i don't know if it's the fact that gibraltar is this island that the visual of just like an island surrounded by water but having stuff on it and three men parachuting towards it is just really cool in itself but i was just kind of impressed by like these shots it looked really good i will say though gibraltar i've been close to gibraltar i haven't actually been there i would like to go there because it's for the monkeys and it's like the the thing is it's a it's a british territory um and still is um it is attached to to the bottom of spain so it's not it's not an island but oh, it, it's see. got it's got a big rock that's why it's called the rock and it's that big mountain looking thing <laughs> it's a great name yeah just the rock <laughs> i'm assuming it sounds better in spanish or something <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh, yeah, so they're coming down and we see a suspicious looking man in a bush with binoculars looking around. But as that's happening, the three men land down, one lands, like they, two of them land okay. And then we see one man lands in a tree and fumbles out of the tree. And one of the soldiers comes out and shoots him. But it's a pink paintball. It's actually a paintball gun. So the whole idea, because it's a training exercise, they're actually using paintball guns. So he shoots him and he's like, you're out of it, mate. Uh, I can, can't do the accent, even though it is a British one. But uh, yeah, very <laughs> British sounding people in this training exercise. Yeah. Oh, mate. Also, he's just like, he's meant to be a double O agent. He was just rubbish. <laughs> yeah, he just landed in a, a tree, tree and then immediately gets shot. I mean, thank, good they did, thank goodness they did this training exercise because he's definitely off the mission now. Come on. Yeah. M's like, you know what you just did landing in the tree? Don't land in a tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe don't. Please. Oh, I'll blast. uh so we see another man land at like the top of hold on i I wrote down at the top i'm assuming it's on the top of one of these cliff sides and he gets shot in the back but then the man we saw in the bush before comes in and shoots the soldier who shot this man for real so somebody has infiltrated it and is using a real gun to shoot someone and so basically there was a man who's like hooked down the or one of the the double o agents has kind of put a rope down for somebody else to climb up so the man is climbing up and then there's another man at the top and i'm saying man a lot and the infiltrator the baddie has come in and shot the people at the top uh and then he goes to cut the rope of the man who is climbing and as he's doing this, he puts this little lock which has a note on it and that falls down. We don't actually see what that is, but it's important for later. And he cuts the rope and the double agent's like, no! And he then falls and dies. And we really see this man fall as well. It's another John Glenn special where it's like, you want to see a corpse, everyone? Like two minutes in, here's a corpse falling all the way down a cliff and like bouncing into this... A little ridge nearby it's like yep that's your john glenn corpse for the film well they must have just had all the dummies left over from a view to a kill it was dummies galore then so they thought oh yes just reuse them (laughs) stick some new clothes on chuck them off it worked i liked it it works yeah and as the man is falling we cut to james so one of the people who parachutes off is james bond and we see timothy dalton and he he turns quite dramatically because bond sees the rope being cut and at this point, the Bond music kind of kicks in. And yeah, it's another more subtle approach for introducing a Bond actor. Like there's no line. We just very much cut to it and see his face. And then he goes. I mean, it, it very much, I think the setup was really cool about the three 
double O agents. So there is a little bit of uncertainty about who James Bond is. And then he does reveal himself and you're like, ah, that's James Bond. But it's a, a little bit more subtle than other ones that we've seen. But I think for Timothy Dalton's James Bond, that probably made more sense. Oh, yeah. It's definitely more in tone with his portrayal of Bond, isn't it? And I mean, even then, it is a bit of like a glamour shot. It's like a, definitely a trailer shot, isn't it? Where, you know, that, the wind's in his hair as he does this dramatic... You're right, it is very dramatic. <laughs> it's it's uh, It does stand out, this one shot of him turning and facing the camera. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, it stands out. You know what they're trying to do, but they don't treat it in such a big way. Nice balance. Good yeah. job, John. Uh, so very quickly after Bond is introduced, he goes and finds the man dead. And then a monkey jumps on him. <laughs> That's the jump scare. Of course. Well, there's actually a second one as well later on, I think, as well. Oh, is there? Oh, okay. I thought that was it for the, the the jump scare. Animal jump scare. Monkey this time. But was there another one? I guess. Well, well I, I think it. there was one towards the end. But the monkey's the big one. I think that's what mm. you meant to walk away. You know, ah, oh, the monkey jump scare. Great. He <laughs> <laughs> likes to keep us on our toes, old John. Yeah. What animal it's going to be next? Cat, bird, dove, monkey. <laughs> uh, so... This man, the assa- I'll call him the assassin. Uh, so the assassin uh, finds this truck and jumps in and he starts driving away. Uh, so Bond and starts running to try and catch up with it because this is on this island of Gibraltar. So the, the roads are quite windy. So Bond is able to kind of run along. And as he's running, one of the soldiers who doesn't know what's going on shoots at him and hits him with a paintball. And he's like, oh, you're dead, mate. You bloody, <laughs> you geezer. Um, but Bond is able to jump on top of the t- truck uh, and we get a kind of this scene of Bond trying to get into the truck as it goes like winding down. And we have a very like funky sort of beat kicking in. Like it's another very like eight to five, like 80s style uh, action uh, score for this. But I actually quite like this one. I think this one wasn't quite as in your face as the stuff as we saw in your for your eyes only. So I actually quite enjoy this music here. Yeah, I, I think I still preferred the one from A View to a Kill. Um, yes, which was also used in the pre-tart sequence. But this one is it's still good. It is still good. Yeah. Yeah, it's like so the A View to a Kill one was a bit more cool and kind of controlled and weighty, where this one's a bit more funky and upbeat. It's more energetic. Um, yeah, but that works too for what they're trying to do. Uh, so the man is shooting upwards, trying to get Bond, and the truck then drives into all the guards because there's like this checkpoint, and some of the guards with the guns, uh, he hits them, uh, and then one of the guards shoots a real gun at the truck, which hits it in the back, and it turns out this truck is holding a load of explosives, uh, so it gets shot. Although they're like explosives that seem to blow up at the exact time that needs to blow up. <laughs> yeah, we won't. Let's not dwell on that bit, even though it is kind of strange. Yeah, because the bullets cause the explosives to set on fire, but they don't explode, and it's fine. Um, so Bond gets his boots burnt by the fire, which kind of made me laugh a little bit. I'm like, okay, all right. Um, and then Bond gets a knife and he cuts a hole in the top of the truck and. He leans in and starts wrestling with the guy, uh, but the truck is starting to like sphere around and go a bit crazy as those two are wrestling. One of the explosive box falls off and explodes. Uh, at this point, Bond is able to fully get into the truck and it's a lot more wrestling. We see some more monkeys because, of course, um, I don't think they really do anything. They just like to get a lot of shots of monkeys in here. 
for I guess the reason you said that Gibraltar is known for for monkeys. Yeah, it's like a touristy thing. You go up there and they jump all around you and steal food off you and stuff. Yeah, we see a lot of tourists here as well, although the the screen of the truck is completely covered by paint. And also the assassin is wrestling with Bond, but somehow they still drive perfectly. <laughs> it's another thing, you don't think about it too much, but they do take a little bit of liberties with this one, with the explosives and this truck that's meant yeah. to be like driving on these really tiny roads perfectly somehow. And there's this huge fire in there at the same time, but it's still managing to avoid all the cars and everything, yeah. Yeah, it's a little ridiculous. So Bond eventually gets in and the truck just drives off. It just, I say they drove perfectly. They did until they didn't and just drives off the edge and goes towards the ocean. But as it's falling, Bond knocks out one of the windows. I can't remember, does he pull the parachute or does the assassin put it for him? I think he does. Yeah, that would make more sense, right? Uh, So he knocks out the window, pulls his parachute that he had on him, and then he goes flying out the truck. The truck then is falling into the ocean. And of course, it can't just fall into the ocean. It then explodes um, because of all the bur- uh, the burning explosives on board. So this leaves Bond in the air with a parachute, just trying to land. And his parachute's on fire a little bit, so he's coming down quite fast. And he sees a ship below. And we cut to that ship. And it's a woman in a bikini just sitting on the or lying on the phone being like, Oh, if only I can find a real man. It's all just toy boys. And at that second, Bond lands on the roof and rolls off. And she's like, who are you? And he's like, Bond, James Bond. And she offers Bond some champagne. And he's like, you better make that too. And there we go. There it is. Uh, Yeah. I think this is what you were talking about, where I can't really pinpoint why I like this that much. But I was really into this. (laughs) Like... Oh, this really? did make me excited for the rest of the film. Maybe it was the excitement of seeing a new Bond was enough to carry this for me. And I do think the music was really good as well. But when I think about it, the actual thing itself is really standard and whatever. But for some reason, I was just really into it and like really enjoyed it straight off the bat. Yeah, that's the thing. I I think I'm seeing the the standardness of it, and I, but I'm not getting the excitement from it like you are. To me, it was just a bit... It was just a bit plain. Like the only thing that really happened is the the car veers off the <laughs> off the coast, off the cliff, and then explodes. But I, I do like I like the set. I like using Gibraltar as a setting. I mean, I don't really think it was used. I don't know. I guess it just looks cool. That's all it needs to not do. Not enough really. monkeys is what you're not saying. Not enough monkeys. Maybe the monkey should have been in the car with them. Yeah. Maybe the monkey should have been throwing explosives or something. <laughs> um, or like a video game. <laughs> yeah. Donkey Kong. There we are. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah to me i just it was it was uh i don't know it was all right i liked the introduction of bond and i liked you know when he's on the boat and he lands and uh and is talking to the woman and you don't get any of the sort of it's kind of the same that we got with daniel craig when he became bond where you don't get any of that sort of build up to it's almost subverting things where it's like he just says bond james bond very matter-of-factly and there's no sort of charm or anything to it sort of angle and you know they they definitely are trying to set dalton apart from roger immediately off the bat with stuff like that um yeah i think it was it was as i say earlier it was just fine very very fine for me i understand that yeah i just think there is a real worth to when you introduce a new bond and have this opening sequence to keep it maybe a little bit more standard 
Um, mm. I think that can work in its favor. Of course, you do have Daniel Craig, who they didn't do that very intentionally. They swung in a very different direction to uh, separate him out. But this one, I can kind of understand why they went this way. And maybe somewhat it reflects Timothy Dalton's Bond as a whole, which is like not the most standout and distinctive Bond out there. Um, but still, like it's a little bit more grounded. I think the exercise idea is really solid. It's like it works well enough as its own own like Bond set piece. Even though if it's not the most impressive or the most exciting, it's like it does that job. And it's just nice to see Tim. I just like seeing Tim. Tim's good. And I'm Tim's sure good. I'm sure it's got brownie points from you for linking to the main plot as well. Yeah, although you don't know that initially. Like it actually takes I want to say like half an hour for that properly to really kick in mm. but initially i just took this as a standard one and i still liked it but i was like okay it makes sense they would do a standalone one and then later you're like oh actually that is tied into something so okay that's actually quite cool i like how they do that yeah right well i guess i'll move on to the title sequence although i feel like i have probably the least amount to say about this that, that i have ever in this podcast because to me um well, let's talk about the song first. So the song Living Daylights by Aha, very much in the vein of what we had before by uh, Duran Duran. I think they saw that song do well and they saw that the use of uh, you know a, a pop song or something a bit more modern rather than the ballady songs working well and, and stuck with it. Uh, and I, I do like the song, The Living Daylights, but again, I think it's one of these recurring themes of this podcast and maybe the next one i don't know that you just said is is how it is just very i think dalton's films are sort of caught in the middle of things and and then they sort of tend to get a bit lost um so to me this song is all it's just another one of those things that is is perfectly fine and perfectly pleasant i wonder how many times i'm going to say fine in this podcast hmm. um perfectly pleasant but it's just one that i wouldn't i don't know I, I've, I've not got many strong feelings towards it well I'm going to go out there and say okay. I actually like this song better than A Few to a Kill. Oh, do you? I think A Few to a Kill is a better song in the in the film, like in the opening sequence or the credit sequence. I think it's better than that. But in terms of listening to the song outside of it, I actually like this song more. Okay. Um. So A Few to a Kill is like a better intro. It's more exciting. But when I get to the end of A Few to a Kill, I just kind of... I still like it, but I just prefer The Living Daylight. I think it's more solid. And uh, something I find quite interesting about The Living Daylight as well is that there's like two different versions of it. Because you hinted at it last week about how John Barry and Duran Duran just didn't get on very well. Um, And that same sort of thing somewhat happened with Aha as well. Um, So you ended up with two versions. You had the John Barry version, which is what used in the film, which has the like iconic Bond horns and, you know, all those instrumentals you would associate with Bond. And then you have the Aha version that strips that out and makes it more synth based. Right. So I actually quite like both of them as well. Oh, okay. Um, I actually quite like the alternative version, even though like, yeah, they take out all those Bond elements. And yeah, I think like the Bond elements in A Few to a Kill also just work better this one does seem a little bit more in there, but I don't know. It's a personal thing, right? Like all with all music and all yeah. films, really. Like, oh, um, like it's a personal thing, and I just prefer that song. So, but I do think a few to a kill is better, getting you excited and into a Bond film than the Living Daylights. I just personally, personally prefer the song um, to listen to. Okay, well, 
In terms of what you actually see on screen <laughs> during the title sequence, this is the one I just completely... I try. I really do try and see the best in these title sequences. He tries, people. Give him a break. I do try, especially after doing this podcast and then, and sort of coming to the conclusion, at least so far, that they've never really been that great up until now. And I, I've, I've kind of surprised myself by noticing that. And so I really wanted to like this one. Um, I thought New Bond, maybe they were going to do something a bit different. I, I couldn't remember what it was like before watching it. It's just a mess. It's a complete mess of things. It's just, this might be the least cohesive title sequence I think we've had so far. I just, in my notes, I've got water ripples, gunshots, lady floating in water, headlights, yep. sunglasses, mm-hmm. yep. giant woman, a, a woman looking content in a giant glass of champagne. Like what yep. on earth was I, <laughs> was I drunk or was this, did that actually happen? <laughs> Well, maybe a little column A, column B situation. But yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I quite like it. I, I okay. had fun with this one because, I don't know, like it felt more dynamic. Like something that, like a lot of the imagery we've seen before, like this is, as you just described, guess what? There's water effects. <laughs> guess mm-hmm. what? There's silhouettes and women as well, and women holding guns. There's a lot of women holding guns in this one. Yeah. They went all in on that for some reason. Um, but this one, I like that it felt a little bit more dynamic because you get a lot more moving camera angles and moving cameras in this one. And it made me realize, like, yeah, they never really move the camera in a lot of these. So up to this point, it's been like you have a camera, you have your shot, and then, maybe, you know, you fade or cut to the next bit. But this one actually had the camera move. And I quite like that, the energy again, that ball and how it kind of felt a little bit more alive and moving Um I mean, the song being like an 80s pop song, I think also kind of helps. Although maybe this type of camera movement would have worked better for the last one, A Few to a Kill, because that one is a bit more in your face. So maybe the more in your face nature would have worked better there. Uh, but I don't know. Like It felt like a bit more effort. And I think that's all I kind of really want. Um, there's a little bit more variety, a little bit more effort. The theming isn't quite there. And there's some things that are still a little bit awkward and weird. But it was more visually interesting because just because the camera moved. <laughs> Like it made a big difference, I feel. Yeah, I, I'll give you, I'll give you that. It definitely was more interesting visually, but mainly just because I was confused about why there was a giant glass of champagne with a woman in it. But <laughs> I wonder whose idea was that. Yeah, I can't really justify that. I don't know. I got nothing there. Yeah, I mean, there's always champagne in Bond films, so I guess they just thought now was the time to have that in the title sequence as well. Let's just put a woman in there as well. Why not? Yeah. Hey, anything goes. They should have also just put like the <laughs> that picture of Roger from the Spy Who Loved Me, just like creep it up <laughs> on the side for a shot. They just yeah, they just can't stop using it. Yeah, they're just addicted. Yeah, it's what the people want. No, not anymore. We're oh. done with Roger. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm Roger. Sorry. Uh, anyway, the after the title sequence, we move into Bratislava. Mm. In Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia. Very nice. I, I didn't want to pronounce that. <laughs> it's uh, it's night time and uh, it, we're at a sort of, is it an opera house? I don't know what you'd really call that. Yeah, it's like a, a concert theater. hall or something. Yeah, like concert It's not hall, a huge it. opera, but it's still like a yeah orchestra is still there. Yeah, and there is an orchestra playing there. And um, we see Bond is there to meet up with uh, this man. We don't know who this man is, um, but they're up in one of the sort of uh, boxes on the side. 
and the man ends up being uh, one of the uh, another agent. Don't think we know his name yet, but his name is Agent Saunders. I think Bond might say it like the first thing he says to him, like Saunders, oh. calm down. It's <laughs> okay, <laughs> right, yeah, because we we very quickly learn that this this Saunders character is clearly like a very by the books man, um, moaning that Bond is late and uh, you know very straight and narrow um, sort of character. And they're there uh, watching in the in the hall uh, at this man who's on kind of the opposite side to them, uh, Kos- Koskov. They're there watching him. They've got little uh, little um, binoculars, and Bond's looking over at him, and and has a little peek at the uh, the players on the stage, and, and spots um, one of the cellists as well. Uh, and yeah, we, uh, Saunders is, is basically saying that um, you know it's nearly time or something like that, so they need to get going. Um, so they leave the the concert hall. We don't really know what's going on yet, but we're just sort of you know just in on it. Um, and they leave and go pretty much across the street to another building. And in this building, uh, well, Saunders goes to turn on the lights and, and Bond says turn off the lights because we very quickly realise that they're here to... Well, Bond takes out this humongous gun. <laughs> his gun is huge. Um, and he also does this really cool thing with his uh, tuxedo jacket. I don't know if you spotted that, but he sort of like flips up the the uh, lapels of it and then it turns into this sort of covert thing i don't know i don't know how to describe it but it looked really cool how he did this i didn't see that no oh yeah so yeah he like flips it up and then velcros it across and suddenly he's like you know all in black and, oh velcro uh, really... you didn't say that was velcro i'm sure it was some sort of maybe velcro or some sort of clip or something and yeah he looks like he's ready to, to you know do something very secret um because the idea is is that uh, this is Saunders' mission, um, and he is here to help the defection of that character we just saw, Koskov, who's going to try and escape through that theatre house and uh, that theatre and and get to them on the other side of the street. And he specifically, this Koskov, Koskov character, who was a KGB, uh, specifically asked for Bond to give him protection as he does this, because the idea is that He's going to try and make a run for it, so there might be uh, snipers and, and things like that ready to catch him. So yeah, Bond is in this room and he's getting his gun together and they go onto the balcony overlooking the theatre on the other side of the room, uh, other side of the road, and ready for when Koskov uh, makes a run for it. So I think the show... The, the the orchestra finishes and uh Koskov goes to the the toilet and um escapes out of the toilet window and Bond is there watching. You can see him down in the side and, and ready to make a run across the street. Uh but he does spot a sniper. There is someone who is trying to stop Koskov. And what do you know, it's not some like nasty KGB agent, it is the cellist that he spotted earlier on in the hall itself and you know it's this really young lady uh blonde haired like completely out of place why is she doing this sort of thing so um while saunders is there as i say very by the books he needs bond to get rid of this this uh sniper because it's a, a risk to koskov and and this whole operation uh, bond doesn't um he doesn't shoot her directly he shoots the gun that she's holding as a bit of a warning shot which is enough to make her stop and uh, and 
hide back in and, and give Koskov the chance to run across and get to them. I will um, say about this scene, uh, it does yeah. have some of the problems of the other John Glenn films where it's like it's so easy to miss the details mm. because this all happens very quickly. Like it's straight away Saunders and Bond meet up. They're like, there's some KGB guy with some Russian name that I'm going to say super quick. So <laughs> you might just miss it. Then here's a woman and they're like, cool. All right, let's go across the street. And then Saunders just like hammers a ton of exposition at Bond. And yeah. all this stuff makes sense to me now that I've watched the rest of the film because you see all these characters again and you fit it all together and it all kind of makes sense. But initially I was kind of like a little bit lost and a little bit confused because you just have all these names thrown at you and you're kind of supposed to go with it. I like the idea of this is kind of a mission in progress. You don't see the setup. You kind of just see Bond get there and then is a sniper, which is also very cool. I'm not sure how often we've seen Bond as a sniper. I don't think it happens yeah. that often. Um, so that's very cool. Very cool idea. But yeah, I got a little bit lost during all this. Yeah, that is one of those things, isn't it? With these, It's, it's these sort of characters, like Saunders in these films, that they, they do just give a lot of information at once. And so you, I, I was the same, to be honest. I had to sort of stop. And then later on in the film, I sort of matched things up a bit better. But... I do really like this scene, mainly because it sort of gave me uh, From Russia With Love vibes when they're yeah. doing the a very similar sort of thing where they're, they're watching someone coming out of a window and, and needs to shoot them. Um, I think, yeah, just nighttime, the nighttime setting and, and getting a little bit of like a night city uh, location. It's, it's nice. And as you say, seeing Bond actually do this this sort of stuff where he is... Uh, this gun is just like so massive as well. It's got such a gigantic lens on it. I, I was like, is that a real gun? But I'm sure it is. Um, but yeah, actually doing these sort of spy activities and really looking apart. And this is the part of the film where I had that sort of giddiness. Where I was like, oh my God, this is actually a, y- a younger actor playing Bond and I can find this. This is all so believable to me. It's not some nearly 60 year old man doing this. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I think that works too. Something that I did kind of notice, I don't know if I noticed it here, but it's something that I just thought of it, so I'm going to talk about it. Um, Timothy Dalton does not come across to me as that much of a ladies' man, or at least someone who like pines over women in the same way Roger and Sean did. Because initially what happens here is that, so the woman is yeah trying to snipe, and Bond fires a shot at her, where Sean is like, kill her, there's the sniper, take her down. But Bond shoots the sniper rifle instead to not kill her, but to stop her from shooting. And Saunders then accuses him of like, oh, you only did that because that's a beautiful woman. And also in the theatre, when Bond is looking at the woman on stage, he's like, oh, look at that lovely blonde on front. Mm. And Saunders is like, oh, you and the women, James. (laughs) What a, oh, you. (laughs) I just never bought it. Like, I just never think that fitted quite right. And I think it it doesn't ruin the film or anything. It's not that big of a deal. But I think that was one of those where, you know, it's his first film, like all the first films for new Bond actors that are trying to figure it out. And they kind of really try and force the womanizer aspect in there. And I just never quite bought it. I don't think Tim does a good job of kind of conveying that or bringing that across. I, I just don't think it fits his Bond. I definitely think there are some clunky elements of that later on in the film between him and who this cellist character ends up being i think for now i'm sort of by this scene because i think it's more the fact that he uh, yeah i mean you do get the bit where he is looking at her in the the hall itself 
But I I read this more as why he's not he's not not shooting her because she's a pretty lady, but because why is she in this position? So there's clearly more to this situation than what's been let on. Is what I sort of read that as. Yeah, I mean, and that's cor- like that's correct, right? Like that is how you're meant to take it. He's not just all oh, pretty lady, but I feel like there was a real, I don't know, smug in like enjoyment from like Roger when he did this, like in Octopussy, right at the auction hall, where he's just sitting there all smug, having like so full of himself, and he's like, "Oh, beautiful woman!" Of course, he's going to take a look. Where this Bond seems a lot more cool and collected and calm in these situations like he's not there with a big grin on his face like just kind of having fun he's there to do a mission so seeing him then be like i'm going to look at this woman on stage and comment like look how beautiful she is that's that's where i think the contrast comes in where like a sean and roger can pull off that big grinch smile and just kind of act a bit laddie and cheeky i don't think tim can do that and that kind of clashes a bit with him kind of just checking out women sometimes for no real reason yeah yeah, I suppose there aren't there aren't actually that many women in this film, though. Really. No, not maybe, really. So maybe like, maybe they kind of realise that themselves as well. Yeah, there know. was definitely an effort to dial it back, which maybe makes it stand out a little bit more. But even so, it's just a more of an interesting point that stood out for me rather than like an actual problem with the film. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, once Koskov has reached Bond and Saunders, uh, Saunders has this plan which he's not letting Bond in on some sort of, oh, section, blah, 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 paragraph, whatever. Uh, but the idea is that he was going to put Koskov in the boot of his car and and cross the border that way, which Bond does not agree to. That's the first place they'll look, he says. So instead, he takes Koskov in the car and, and leaves Saunders uh, to sort of clean up <laughs> in that location. Um, and, yeah, they drive off. And whilst they're in the car together, there is a quick back and forth about uh, pointing out that the woman was a sniper and... And uh, the str- like, how strange that is, and and I think does doesn't Koskov say something like, "Oh, some of the best, some are some of the best snipers in Russia are women," yeah. or something like that. But yeah, um, yeah, so Bond Bond's I think is asking how how it's going to get across now, and Bond says they've got a pipeline to the west, and quite in the in the literal sense that is because they end up going to the Trans Siberian gas pipeline uh, and meet. This um, <laughs> this this rather uh, interesting character. I can't. I don't, she probably has a name. I can't remember what her name is, but she's there. Uh, who who works there at this this pipe pipeline place? Who who's obviously good friends of Bond and has met him before, and is a contact of Bond's and is willing to help him help him out in this situation and get Koskov across the border. <laughs> Did you catch her name by any chance? No. It looks like it's Rosika. Roscar, maybe? Roscar, okay. Yeah. Um, she's listed a lot higher in the credits than... Like, she's higher than Q on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> wow, okay. I mean, yeah, she's she's an interesting character. She's not that good, though. <laughs> yeah, she's very quick. Although, get used to this with this character. It happens all the time in this film. That James Bond just knows everyone, everywhere. Like, he just walks into a scene and there's a stranger. And he's like, ah, Mr. Bond, good to see you again. And she's like the first of many, because this just happens all the time in this film. Yeah, yeah, I do kind of like that though, to to an extent. I mean, it is kind of a bit silly that this this spy is just known by everyone, but that is that is the joke of James Bond, isn't it? That everyone does know him. But I do like that he does have all these contacts that you have to 
assume he met and and uh, had contact with in in previous missions. So yeah. yeah, I do wonder if part of the reason they did that is because you know they're obviously not they're not rebooting, but they are casting a new Bond. I wonder if they were doing that just to try and make it so it's like. Oh, this isn't like a amateur 007. You know, this isn't 007 as a as a young man or anything. This is a established agent who knows a lot of people because it's yeah. crazy how many times he just knows somebody. So I feel like maybe that might be an effort to say like, no, this is your experience, 007, who knows his stuff. We're not going that far back. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. Yeah. I, Although, I read that there were some considerations for this to be like a reboot and an origin story. They just decided against it. Yeah, just give it another, like, what, 15 years or a bit longer. Yeah. Um, yeah, where was that? Oh, yeah, they're in, the, they're in the pipeline bit. So their plan is to sneak Koskov across the border in a pig, it's called, which is this basically just a big capsule that goes through the pipe. Um, so they load him in it, and he's obviously quite nervous at this uh at this prospect and doesn't have much confidence in the in it because this russian lady is like explaining about you know you got to do it at this certain pressure or else he'll explode basically and uh she goes off to go distract one of the guards in this pipeline place otherwise all the alarms will go off and well the alarms do go off but she's there to distract him as bond loads koskov in and um you get like is this maybe this is the first one? I don't know. Like the first quip from Bond. It's not really a quip, but it's like the first sort of kind of humorous moment, anyways, where Koskov is is asking, her, "How many times have you tested this?" And Bond just says, "You're the first and slams it shut. Um, so yeah, the woman goes and distracts the guard in a very interesting way. She just sort of strips a bit and uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let, let lets him have a good time. Um, I whilst... should say that this is like. <laughs> Because when you say a woman strips a bit in a Bond film, you imagine like a 27 blonde woman, right? And that does happen later. Don't worry, fellas. Um, but this is like a big kind of Russian woman or Chechnya woman, I suppose. So it's supposed to be like a comedic scene of like big woman shoves man in her chest. <laughs> like and he's just, yeah. And it, it is very silly because he's just there going like, it's just completely overwhelmed by it. Like, to, to a comical extent um but yeah all the alarms go off bonds sets off the uh the pig in the pipe and um that gets shot and you see it sort of clang around and go across the border mm, like with the humor in general like i can't really think of anything that made me groan but it's interesting how much humor is still kind of here uh, and it, it, again, nothing as like grown worthy or cringy as some other films, but it's just kind of there for the most part. I can't really think yeah. of anything that made me laugh. Um, there's a couple little bits later on, but the the things that actually made me laugh, or maybe not, maybe not even a full laugh, just a smirk, smirk, or a, a small exhale of air. Um, <laughs> uh, those it was never really like the one liners. It was always something else that that I found funny. So, you know, it's they can keep doing these these one liners, and and Dalton does have a few. I don't think he pulls them off as well as, say, Roger Moore. But even you know, even now, I'm still not still not loving them that much. No, I think they didn't really know what the humor for Timothy Dalton's film should be, 
And it doesn't result in anything bad. You know, again, it's not a major complaint here. I'm not going to complain too much about it, but it's like they just hadn't quite figured that out. So we get a little bit of kind of Roger Moore silliness carry over to this, although they knew they needed to dial that back a bit. So there's yeah. this like comedic moments with Bond himself, but you still just kind of get these scenes like woman <laughs> distracting the guard and the guards are like, oh, and then all the lights <laughs> are going off really loud. Like you still kind of get that. So it's... I, again, I take it more as this was Timothy Dalton's first, so they hadn't figured it out. So they tried something, and it didn't like crash and burn, but it kind of didn't work. And I'm assuming that's why the next film probably just didn't have as much humor in it. No, replace the humor with violence in that one. Yeah, <laughs> let's get some gore in there. Yeah. So yes, so the man's in the pipe. Uh, what's his name again? Is it very Kuskov? Kuskov. I wrote Although down I think... like. Georgie in all my no- or Yorgi, I think it's pronounced yeah. later. After a certain point, I think it's generally just people call him Yorgi. Yorgi, yeah, but that like it's confusing because this is General Yorgi Koskov, but sometimes people call him General, sometimes people call him Yorgi, sometimes people call him Koskov. It's very confusing. Um, luckily, he's got such a distinct, punchable face that that helps <laughs> separate him out. Uh, yeah, so this man's in the pipe, and there's also a little bit of a humor scene here where you see the pipe at different angles or different line uh, parts of the pipe and you hear something going through and you have people kind of look and react. Again, nothing too over the top, but you have people kind of reacting that something's going through. Uh, and then the pip arrives in Austria and the general is taken out and Q's there, which is always lovely. And yep. he's like, welcome to Austria, general, uh, of which he is very quickly escorted away. He is put into a fighter jet with Q close behind Paul Q has to go up some stairs. It's a it's a whole thing for him. It takes a lot of out of him. <laughs> His hair's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, he's a bit of a mess at this point. But uh yeah, so the plane then takes off and we see Bond who's trying to leave uh I think just normally, because he doesn't come with him, at a checkpoint getting his passport checked. He sees the plane kind of take off. So throughout this we had like a little bit of military music playing. Uh, but now this goes more into the Bond theme. We do get quite a lot of the Bond theme in this one, not so much as like Octopussy, but I think because it's a new Bond, they they shelf the Bond theme in there like a little bit more than they normally would. Yeah, got to have in there a little bit. Yeah, so we have Saunders and Bond catching up afterwards, and he's all like, cheer up, Saunders, it's mission success, you did it, it's still your mission. And Saunders is all upset, being like, I'm reporting you to M, you deliberately missed. Um, you should have killed her, of which Bond says, uh, the girl didn't know how to use a sniper rifle. Like, that's, I did it for a very good reason. And then he goes quite callous, where it's like, if, because like, uh, Saunders is saying, like, M will fire you, we'll get rid of you. And Bond's like, if he fires me, I'll thank, for, thank him for it. Mm. And then goes into the line, whoever that was must have scared <laughs> It must have scared the living daylights out of her. Oh. Because that's the... To be fair, it worked better than A View to a Kill, so... <laughs> yeah, but at least Just that was about. Christopher Walken there for that one. This one is Timothy Dalton driving a car, being like, the living daylights. Um, but yeah. this was really interesting. I don't know how much of this you get in the rest of the film. I don't quite remember, but yeah, Bond being very kind of cold and callous and casual about like... Yeah, if he fires, I thank him for it. Like, you never see that before. It's 
it's a very small throwaway line, but it, it really helps separate Timothy Dalton as his own Bond, like, straight away. Oh, yeah, you ne- you would never have Roger saying something like that. But no. For, for sure, no. I, I did think about this because we see, no, no, with hindsight, we see a lot of this with what they did with the Daniel Craig Bond. Um, so I was thinking, like, how much of this have we seen before? And I suppose the closest we got is with On Her Majesty's Secret Service, where he does actually go to resign, um, George Lazenby anyway. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't think you really see this aspect of Bond very much more in the film where he, I mean, there is a part where he kind of butts head with him, but it's a shame because I I kind of saw this line. I thought, oh, right. Yeah. They're going to go down that line of he's very, you know, he's an agent, but he's just, he's very blase about it. He's maybe been in it for too long. He sees what it's doing to him sort of thing, but it isn't really addressed very much more. No, I think they, the way they do kind of uh, flesh this out is about Bond is someone who does things his way. To heck with the rule book. He doesn't mm. care. Uh, I think that's how you're meant to interpret it because that's how it's kind of carried on where he does things more unorthodox. But this didn't quite read like that. And I like that it didn't read like that. Just would have been nice if there was a little bit more rebellious, like, or not rebellious, but, you know, more kind of pragmatic maybe that's the word i guess we're building up to that yeah because i know in the next film he's very much very much against uh m in that one so i guess this is just like the foundation to that yeah and i will also say with the living daylights line that's kind of the only thing that relates it to this i think this is the last one in a while where the name was actually taken from one of the books or the short stories and for a little bit afterwards, we have just kind of made up names or like related names, but not actually just like names of the stories. Um, so it makes it a little bit off because I don't think this is really based on the original novel at all. So they kind of just forced it in there. It was like, all right, I, I don't dislike the name at all as a Bond thing, but it's like, you probably didn't need this line in here. Mm. So after that, we cut to London during the day. And we see a shot of a building for Universal Exports. This is your bread and butter, isn't it, Joe? Is it? Well, I thought I remember you liking this aspect about the Oh, exports. oh. Yes, yeah. I mean, you kind of expect after that first scene that it's going to cut straight to M's office. Or really, you'd expected that to happen straight after the title sequence. Um, but no, I do like that they, they are still keeping in the Universal Exports aspect of this. You're right. Yeah, very nice. It's very small detail, but a very nice one. So we go inside this building and it's Q Branch, basically. I think it's Q Branch. It's a bit unclear. Uh, Like the layout and the setting of this area is quite different to the previous films, where I think they kind of have shaken up how this building works and MI6 works, you know, where before it was just like Money Penny's office, M's office, and then an underground bunker for Q. But now we're in like a more open area, like a traditional office. Um, which is something we actually see for our Piers Brosnan and Daniel Craig as well. But it's quite interesting to see it. I think here's the first time they've really mixed that up. Maybe a little bit on For Your Eyes Only, but not quite as much as this. Mm. Uh, so Q is talking to Bond and he's going through KGB women assassins or snipers and giving a little bit of description for both. And he's like, oh, this one has an explosive teddy bear. Because the idea is that Bond is trying to find who that woman was, the sniper before. And Q comes to the realisation, or just says, like, there's no one, there's no one here, this woman is not here. 
we can look at other people. So basically confirming that she was not a KGB agent. And as this is happening, Money Penny walks in, but it's not Lewis Maxwell. It's uh, it's New Woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think her name. I might be getting this wrong because I've not looked it up. I think her name was Caroline Bliss. That sounds right. Yeah. So she comes in and talks to Bond and says, oh, M wants you. And So she's not in this film much, the new Money Penny, but she's still just bad. Oh. Like, I just got no kind of charisma and charm from this woman at all. She just felt an actress that looked like a young Money Penny. They sapped some glasses on her and that was that. But I just got no... Like, it's not even, like... Because, you know, initially with Roger Moore and uh, Lois uh, Maxwell, there wasn't quite that chemistry there. But I think they were still kind of strong enough personalities and actors that it was still, like, not great, but, like, okay. She just feels like this could have been anyone. I don't think she brings anything to the role, if I'm being honest. No, I don't think she does either. But I think that's mainly just because she wasn't really given the chance. Um I don't know, I feel a bit conflicted because I've actually seen her in person. Um, oh, here we like... go, a bit of favouritism. <laughs> I mean, I haven't spoke to her directly, but she was she like, hosted one of these um, uh, Bond music touring orchestras and uh, she was really nice and she was giving stories about like you know her time acting on these films and everything. So, you know, I'm a, I am a little bit biased here, but, but yeah, it is very much like she she looks like uh, a character which you're meant to like in a film where you're meant to she's meant to be like a really nerdy woman or a really ugly woman and then you take off the glasses and you un uncurl the hair and then she's like suddenly she's this beautiful woman like, they, like you're right in that they've clearly just put some glasses on her to make her look receptionisty in a way it's kind of unfortunate um but also i think that they're definitely trying to do something different between money penny and bond as well where I feel like before Money Penny and Bond were always quite equal in that Money Penny was always, you know, kind of wistful in in wanting to date Bond, sometimes serious, sometimes jokey, and Bond would always sort of play that back to her. Whereas with this one, I, I definitely I, I got the sense it was more like this Money Penny is younger and Bond sees that he's younger, so that she's younger and like treats her that way. So when she's talking about uh is this the bit where she talks about a barry manilow collection or is that later on oh that might be later that might be later on but anyway like there's a bit where like he puts a i know this bit is a bit where he puts her glasses back on for her and i don't know just sort of treats her a bit more like a child um and and not and kind of like yeah not uh not matching her level of flirtiness if that makes sense so (laughs) i don't know i think She's in this film so little, it doesn't really matter. It is a shame that after all this time waiting for a new money penny, we do get one and it's kind of a bit near. Well, yeah, the the move to recast was definitely the right one. Like, I'm definitely happy they did that. I'm also very happy Q didn't get recast. I think that was a good choice. I'm I'm glad Desmond is still around. I think he still fits that role very well. And I still like him and and Tim together. It's just money penny. It's just like... Just so nothing. And again, I think her role, as you kind of say, as being kind of younger and having the glasses, she is meant to be more just kind of an office worker because she does go and do some research for Bond. 
but they just kind of change the vibe maybe a bit too much and it just comes across as very bland because yeah. money penny was so distinct as a character she was in the film so little but it was such a distinct iconic relationship and they try and reinvent it and they come up with something so bland and forgettable and it's probably not 100% the actress's fault but I do think she did a bad job like she just brings nothing to this and maybe some of this is because I do think Tim and the ladies just doesn't work as well as other films like there's just kind of nothing there but it was just like oh she's just bad oh just bad right I'm gonna go tell her you said that oh on discord or something yeah yeah I've got her number as well so smart I hope you're happy you've made her upset well, she has another film to prove me wrong. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be. I don't think it's going to be much better. <laughs> no, I can't imagine. Uh, so, yeah. So, so Money Penny reports that Bond uh, needs to go and report to M, and we are in Q Branch, I suppose, because we hear some electric guitar music playing quite loud, and everyone goes over to this other room, and we see a man play holding a boombox. And he presses a button and a rocket comes flying out of it and blows up a dummy. And Q gets all excited. It's like, that's something we're making for the Americans. It's called a ghetto blaster, which is like, oh, that's... Oh, Q, I don't know about that one. Maybe rename that one. Um, well, I thought I thought it was going to be... Boombox was going to be the I mean, that's so line. obvious, right? Yeah, and then, uh, yeah, okay. They had, they had choices, I suppose. Yeah, so Money Pennies tells... Money Penny tells Bond that M wants him to go to Harrods to go and buy a gift for the general here. Although I don't know if that gets said, but Bond gets told to go to Harrods to, to get some gifts. Mm. So after Bond is told to go to Harrods, we see, well, initially an American, because this guy is running in the country. Like, it's a random show in the countryside, and we see a man jogging, which it is an American accent he's using, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. I thought so. <laughs> Which is a little bit weird. I don't know why he would pick an American accent. Because it doesn't look American. It doesn't matter. So he then jogs past a milkman. A very traditional looking milkman. And as he jogs past he then comes back. And the, the milkman is just doing his thing. Loading up his truck. And the American using his headphones. I believe. Because he was listening to music. He comes up behind the milkman. And he strangles him. Gives him the old strangle. Oh no! And, yeah. Uh, at the same time, we see Bond entering in a black or through a black gate, I think. Um, and we see a very big, fancy-looking ground. It's a very big, fancy house. We get a lot of these in Bond films. I didn't quite realize how many times Bond just goes to a, an extremely over-the-top, fancy estate. <laughs> but here we it's are not again. Quite... Yeah, it's not quite on the, the French level from last time, but it's still a nice-looking place, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't mind living there. No, it's very nice. So we see Bond go up there, and yeah, lots of people tending the grounds, that sort of thing. It's very, like, British countryside over the top. So he goes up to approach the door, and the rake nearby beeps. And that's because Bond is carrying a gun, so somebody has to be like, okay, Bond, you got to leave your gun behind. So he, he leaves his guns behind. Uh, and inside we see the general is there, uh, Kuskov and M. And I think the Ministry of Defense as well, Sir Frederick Gray, he's still with us. He's still there, he's still hanging around. I'm surprised. Quite surprised. Yeah. Uh, so the bond, they're all at the table of this big dinner room and 
Kuskov goes up to Bond. He's like, thank you so much. I knew you would do it. 007. And kisses him on the face. Very French kind of style. And Bond gives the general the presents that he picked up. And we get a little bit of a gag here where the Kuskov is all like, oh, this is amazing. Such great taste you have. And Bond then gives M the receipt. He said, oh, it was... Because apparently he was meant to buy something specific, but Bond was like, oh, they were out of that, so I bought the old thing. So M looks at the receipt, so, oh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> blaster, blaster, blaster. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why he would do that. I'm not too sure what they're doing with M here. This is the second time we've had, like, a little bit of a joke of him reacting to something. It's like the old blast <laughs> moment, and now we have this. I'm not sure who told him this was funny, but... Yeah. Uh, so we see, while this is going on, we see the milkman, or... The American who was jogging, now disguised as the milkman, pull up to the gate. And the guy at the gate who's guarding it is like, who are you? Like, where's the usual milkman? And the guy who's here, the henchman, is all like, oh, it's... He has the flu, but this time in a very, like, British accent. Like, well, geezer sort of accent this time. So the guard searches the man, doesn't find anything, and then lets him through. Um, Yeah, he's all like, what's the hands, mate? (laughs) Very over the top. So we know that he's very good at accents. Yes. That doesn't doesn't really mean much later on, but hey, he can do it, all right? (laughs) Yeah, if you need him to. So there we go into the the room again where Kuskov is uh, explaining stuff. So it's another plot dump. And I might get something wrong here. So feel free to correct me, Joe, as I go. God, so, you're relying on me. This is that's not how this works. <laughs> I, need, I might need the backup on this one. So Kuskov explains that he defected because General Gogol left. He's no longer the head of the KGB, which is a nice bit of continuity, I suppose. If The amount of characters they never talk about or speak about ever again and just gets like written out. But no, Gogol has to get a mention. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've, I bet he he must have had some dirt on Cubby Broccoli or something to just keep keep getting cast in these films or mentioned as well. So I don't know, like the guy, but is anyone going to come into the living daylights and be like, "Where's Gogol? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what Gogol's up to." <laughs> yeah, so his replacement for the head of the KGB was a man called General Pushkin, and Kuskov explains that Pushkin has a secret directive uh, which he pulls out of his shoes there's a piece of paper he pulls it out and it says it's a secret directive to kill a load of british and u.s and european spies to eventually lead to a new war or it could potentially lead to a new war so he's trying to assassinate a load of western spies to to cause a large amount of chaos now i know that it has a name and the name translates to death to spies but I could not tell you what the actual <laughs> name is and how to pronounce it. Um, I, I can see it in my head. I do not want to try and say it. <laughs> Did you make any attempt to write it down? Because I didn't. No. I know the first word is like schmiert. Yeah. I can't remember the second line or the second yeah. word. Yeah, so it's like, yeah. So it's it's that line. It's deaf to spies. We'll probably just call it deaf to spies, but it's like got a different term it's almost like um what was it matoromori something like that matoromori think upon death mm. 
that it's like that but this time it's called death to spies i'm assuming it's latin or something i don't know um, but you see that phrase later in the film which is why we're we're talking about it so much so so yeah so that was about it and this is why the guy leaves and he says how puskin is going to a a north african convention uh, in tangier 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 yeah tangier that's the one um I almost said something like a drink, a cocktail. <laughs> uh, tango? 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 <laughs> uh, but yeah, Tangier. Um, but really, that's a cover. He's not going for a convention. He's here to enact his evil plan to kill these spies. So M and the Ministry of Defence says, oh, this is this is bloody not on. We need to go back to London to discuss this information. Was that all correct? That all good? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's more than what I put. I just put kill spies and escalate to nuclear war. <laughs> that's, and that's why <laughs> Koskov. That's why Koskov's has defected. This is somewhat again. This is similar to the other scene where like it's a big plot dump and it is somewhat complicated. But for me, the only reason why it was quite complicated is because of these names. We've got like the we've got two generals: General Pushkin and General Kuskov. Then you got Kuskov talking about Pushkin, who's also talking about Gogol, and it's like. Oh, it's a lot of info. Like, it's not as bad as Octopussy, but I think this film was a little bit harder to follow than, say, like, A Few to a Kill. Like, it is kind of approaching that line of you can easily get lost. Yeah. But it's Cold War, isn't it? Like, this is another attempt of doing a very Cold War story, which means it gets quite complicated at times, which isn't terrible, but, yeah, I would... It's a bit much sometimes. And I do like the idea of this, you know, the premise of this being a defection from the KGB to prompt what this later becomes. I mean, it's yeah, we soon find out it's not exactly how it's being described by Koskov, but but yeah, I do like that as a as a plot point. Hmm. As Tom mentioned, the American milkman who's very good at accents. I don't think he is actually American, is he? But yeah, he was no. American now. Now he's now he's doing an English accent. He comes in with his milk uh, into the kitchen where there's a, a cook who's carving some ham or something like that. And once again, he gets out. This is his signature weapon. Don't know if we mentioned this, but his signature weapon is his stereo. It's like his Walkman, basically, which is, you know, he uses the earphones of it as a... Oh, I had the same problem with Rush of Love. Garrot. Yes, yeah. I always forget that. Um, yeah. He, so he uses that as a garrot to uh, strangle this, um, this chef or this cook. Although, as he's doing that, um, I believe another, like a butler, comes in the door, um, like to deliver something and spots that there's like some tussling going on or some sort of security breach. So he very quickly gets on his little walkie-talkie thing and says that there's, uh, yeah, something going on and um, calls for like the alarm sort of thing. And so then we get this, the cook's now out for the count, don't know what he did to him, I can't remember now, but it's now the milkman versus this butler guy, and i got to say, like, this is really interesting to have a fight scene that doesn't involve Bond at all, but there's definitely quite a bit to it. It's not just like a very quick one-two punch and then we're done and we're moving on. There's a whole little set piece here in the kitchen where the milkman character and this butler character have a proper go at each other. And, uh, you know, you using all the different things in the kitchen. They're using, like, the grill, like the hob, which is hot, and they're using, like, boiling water and there's knives and stuff flying around everywhere. As I was watching, I was just, I was just thinking, like, shouldn't this be 
why is Bond not here? He's <laughs> <This is> really <laughs> strange. I, mean, I liked it, though, and I've got to give it to this butler. He's damn good, right? He puts up a good fight against uh, Nasty Milkman Man. But um <laughs> just thought it was a really, really strange scene to have. I had the exact same feeling. And to be honest, to me, that meant I didn't like it. Oh. <laughs> like, it's very involved, as you say. Like, it really progresses. Like, it's a quite gritty fight as well. Like, the butler ends up with, like, burn marks from the grill on his face at the end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but to me, I found it too distracting. Like, it was just too distracting to just have, like, this milkman fight this random dude. I just wasn't infested in it at all. I kind of would have liked if they just kind of cut this all shortened it it's like so i appreciate the effort it's something different i can appreciate that but to me it was too weird uh that it was so disconnected from what you would normally get that uh i wasn't really into it mm. yeah it, it was strange uh he eventually does deal with the butler though he knocks him out on some shelving or something and he uses his walkie-talkie from from the the butler's body um with another accent, I think maybe it's a posher accent now, uh, to, I think he says that there's a gas leak or something, and basically yeah. everyone needs to evacuate the building. Uh, I guess just as a way to j- cause more like general chaos and let him get on with his mission, uh, because he goes off to find Koskov. That's the whole reason why he's here. As he makes his way towards Koskov, he's got his milk bottles, which aren't just any old regular milk. No, no, no. We have some nice fancy explosive milk bottles in action. Which is kind of silly, but I do really like. And I, they, they 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 pack a punch. I'll say that. <laughs> like he just gently lobs some of these, and they just send these people flying. Um, so yeah, obviously he's got his own version of Q that is giving him uh, gadgeted milk bottles. I do like that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not from you though. <laughs> not so much for me. No. It definitely goes against the idea of what you know what we're going for with the the change in bond and the more more gritty and then we're getting explosive milk bottles but anyway <laughs> um he eventually does find koskov uh and this other guy and and uh kidnaps them to an extent and takes them out onto the front um well he knocks out koskov and changes his disguise from a milkman into a a doctor because there's this um ambulance helicopter that soon arrives at the this kind of stately house and lands outside and yeah where there's all like general chaos and everything it's the chance for this guy to take koskov and uh board him aboard the the helicopter and basically just kidnap him easy as that simple yeah i just wasn't really into this at all it just never really sucked me in so this milkman who in my notes i just call milkman for the entire film (laughs) never really got his name i don't know what his name is um but this is our henchman and i like similar to what i said with a few to a kill where they had mayday appear very early on and being active i like that they're doing the same thing again here like the henchman is actually actively doing stuff and i like that he's so proactive and yeah kind of gets the better of people it just felt so pointless at the end of the day i just bond leaves so we can have an action scene with somebody else and this character ultimately kind of goes nowhere. I just found it also distracting and it felt also kind of disconnected from everything else. But, you know, again, I like the ideas. I like the idea of having the henchman come in early. I, I like the idea of this general kind of gets kidnapped straight away because, you know, he's being kidnapped by the KGB where he only just defected and now he's being kidnapped again. That's pretty cool. It's just 
just wasn't actually into this the execution i just actually didn't want to watch it it's like i rather just like it come up on the screen with a paragraph saying and here's what happened and then we just move on to the next <laughs> one because <laughs> i like the story idea i just didn't really like the scene itself yeah i mean it was a lot of set set up just to get koskov out of the situation again you know from the perspective of the British intelligence. Um, and he's definitely no Mayday, this character. His name's Necros, by the way. Oh, Necros. Uh, this henchman. He's definitely no Mayday. Uh, I take back what I said earlier, though. I think I said earlier that his accent doesn't, like, his ability to change accent doesn't come into play. I guess it did right there, so I was wrong. Uh, and I think he does use the accent a couple more times, like when he's the balloon salesman later on. So, um, I don't know. I do I do see where you're coming from. I didn't hate, I didn't hate this scene, but I think it probably was a bit more involved than it needed to be. Yeah. It's a John Glenn special, baby. <laughs> I mean, how long is this film? It's about the same length as the other ones, right? It's uh, had so far. 130 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, pretty Oof. much spot on to the others. Uh, so that's definitely, you know, if we were looking at maybe trimming this down, that would be a, a good spot, I think. Yeah. It's just that I get this with every single John Glenn film. There's always a scene where it's like, just cut it. And this was it for me. I can't think if there was any others. I think there probably were. Or there's definitely stuff to trim down in this film to make it tighter and better. But this is, I think, the most individual. Just like, just kind of cut it. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after that, uh, we are back in M's office. Um, I guess we actually haven't been there yet. So now we are in M's office uh, with M and the minister, who is very, very upset. M's basically reeling off what's happened and, you know, ex-people dead and Koskov's missing um frederick gray is you know we're a laughing stock of the intelligence community and not very happy he has to go speak to the pm about what's happened and so he leaves and so we just have bond and m together i guess m was looking into the stuff that koskov was saying about general pushkin uh and the threat of you know the death to spies element that uh was why he defected and so he's now given Bond the all clear to go and terminate Pushkin. Uh, it gives him this folder over and says, you know, this is your next assignment, basically, to go to Tangier and and kill him. And Bond, Bond is a bit unsure about that. He he says that he's he knows Pushkin. It doesn't sound like something he would do. Is this where you were referring to earlier about how Bond seems to know everyone? Yeah, I mean, this happens like all over the film. Like, there's not a character Bond just didn't know beforehand. Yeah. Yeah, so Bond is is Bond doesn't want to do that. Uh, although M M just threatens that he'll get 008 to do it instead, uh, which is enough of an incentive to to get Bond to do it. Although I think, as we've discussed, it's probably Bond now taking this opportunity to do it his own way and uh, not actually go and immediately kill Pushkin. Yeah, I think he agrees to go and assassinate Pushkin from M to make sure nobody else does mm. so he can then figure out what's really going on because he doesn't believe pushkin i think he says he's a lot of things but i can't believe he's a psychotic that would do this yeah and i mean if the man's anything like gogol quite a pleasant man we've seen so i'm with bond on this one yeah i think that's fair and also we get the two-week leave thing I don't know if we can get a counter of how many times somebody brings up Bond. Like, maybe you should have a two-week leave. <laughs> <laughs> but it gets suggested a lot. And it's kind it of does. like, yeah, I wish I was a double O agent that I could just be casually <laughs> thrown a two-week leave. That sounds lovely. <laughs> Do you think he has to go and, like, log it on some website or something? Or like... Yeah, check it in. Someone has to, um, His line you... manager has to approve it. 
Yeah, could you just approve this? It's from M. Oh, you don't have the days, Bond. You don't have the. Da- I'm not seeing them here, Bond. Oh, I see you got a meeting on that Friday, so uh... you, you can take it, but we kind of really want you there. <laughs> I'll see if Double O Eight is free. <laughs> God, this is just depressing because it's making me realise it's real life. No, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think also I'm not sure you might have mentioned it, but yeah, M mentions how the tag. Remember the tag that I said before with the man with the rope. That actually oh, yeah. had the phrase on that said death to spies or the the weird version of it. So that's how this ties back into the original where apparently the double O agents being killed at the beginning of the film is part of the death to spies initiative, which is what's yeah. supposed to be the more personal angle here. There we are. Uh, so after that, Bond goes to Q Brunch. And I did like that initially. Like, So this is now the more traditional Q Brunch scene. And I do like that straight away. Q's like, now pay attention, 007. I'm like, oh, <laughs> he said it. <laughs> um, but this time, Bond gets a key ring from Q. And I have to make sure I get this right, because I found this key ring a little bit confusing, where he says, so he puts a, a gas mask on, and he tells Bond, if you whistle a certain tune then a stun gas will come out, which will kind of disorient someone for a few seconds. Um, But if you whistle a different tune, then it will be a small explosive that you can use to open up a safe. And he explains to Bond how that is personalised for each agent. And for you, Bond, it's a wolf whistle. Which is, is pretty funny. I didn't mind that. The payoff for this is a little bit weak. Um, but I guess that kind of makes sense. I guess this is supposed to be kind of like the the passphrase being "I love you." Yeah, I've just I'm trying I'm trying to think of the payoff for that now. I can think when it was used for stun gas, but I can't think when it was used for an explosion. It was right the, like right at the end, like a minute before the end. Oh, of course, yeah. All right, yeah. yeah. Um, so also, Q explains that there's a little key that can use to unlock ninety percent of the world's locks. Which I can't remember when that gets used. No, that one I'm completely lost on then. I have no <laughs> idea. I guess at some point Bond just opens a lock, but it's like, I, at no point it's like, oh, I'll use my trusty key ring. Thanks, Q. <laughs> Pop it open. There we go. Like, I'm sure he does use it. I could not tell you at all where that happens. No, me neither. So, yeah, so then we get some more gags with the different Q gadgets. So there's a sofa and. I actually did quite like this one. It's quite a fun visual gag. So one of the assistants sits on the sofa and it just folds in and he just completely disappears and then Q sits down on top of it. <laughs> Q needs a good sit down every now and then. Oh, he always has to have a sofa nearby. <laughs> that Q. It was a very smooth, yeah, very smooth action. I did like that too. Yeah, I like it when it's kind of practical like that. It's not just something like a boombox that's got a missile. It's These ones are a bit more fun. Hmm. Uh, so money penny then shows up so something we didn't mention before but bond asked money penny to look into the the cello woman and try and find out who that is uh, which again goes into the more like office style like she's actually somebody who works uh, which money penny did in the past with roger a little bit but yeah she's supposed to be more like working woman who's actually going to do something and not just sit there um, so but she's found her and explains that does, actually, does she say her name? She must do, right? Well, I didn't catch the, the the name of who is the Bond girl for a long time in this film. I was so the same. 
if she did say it here, I missed it, but her name is Kara. So. Kara, yeah, I think she does, but again, it's so easy to miss these names. So there's so many characters, but yeah, uh, yeah it's Kara is her name. And Money Penny explains that she's going to be, she's off currently because her arm is injured, hinting at she injured it when Bond shot at her. Uh, but she's going to be back playing again on Thursday at Tanjai, Tanji Why can't I remember the name of that place? <laughs> Tangier. Um, so Bond's like, well, I better be there then because that's tomorrow or something. And Bond says, I'm taking the Aston Martin. And, well, that's basically it, really. Um, decent enough cue scene. I think it does everything it needs to do. I think it is meant to be a more classic to the point cue scene, which I think kind of helps it wherever they don't go as crazy as some of the other ones. But yeah, it's just a basic Q scene, and it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, to me, Q also seemed less grumpy. So <laughs> I don't know whether that was actually, you know, uh, just like maybe that's just how Desmond Llewellyn was like on the day. Maybe he was in a better mood. Or <laughs> maybe they, you know, maybe they actually wrote him like that. But it, to me, it seemed like he was, he didn't find Bond as annoying as he has done in previous films. No, yeah, there's they don't have that same dynamic where Roger Moore is really the kid poking yeah, the bear. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Wanting to get a reaction. It's like, Timothy Dalton has some comments. I didn't write any of them down. Um, but yeah, it's a little bit more kind of professional here. So yeah, Q doesn't quite seem so grumpy. Yeah. Uh, so after that, we then cut to the concert hall, which is the exact same one we saw before. Apparently this Kara just place there again i suppose even though she was just part of an assassination attempt but she's back no no shame there i suppose she's gonna make some money yeah so we see her practicing inside the hall and bond is watching in the audience and seeing her play and she wraps that up and leaves and then bond follows her and she gets onto a tram so she's on a nearby tram with her cello case and bond is nearby watching so she hasn't spotted Bond, but Bond is just kind of watching her. And the tram stops. And we see a load of police nearby, looking around a building. And a very creepy looking man in a jacket enters the tram. And I think a second man enters as well. And these men just walk up to Kara, grab her, take her away. And Bond just kind of watches this all. Yeah. Like, it makes sense that he does. But it was a very odd thing to see that these uh, agents were just taking this woman away because eventually, like, we see her get put into a car and we see the evil man or an evil looking man who is Pushkin. So earlier, we did actually see a picture of Pushkin on the one of the tables when they were in London. So this is actually Pushkin who is there. So we see the woman has been shoved into a car and taken away. But yeah, it was very odd to see Bond just watch that happen. I feel like... Nobody else's Bond would have done that. Only Timothy Dalton would have done that. Yeah, I was expecting him to make a move to try and follow. But you're right, he just stays on the tram. Um, although she, that partially because she did leave her cello behind. But yeah, like it is quite a, an interesting difference between the Bonds, yeah. Yeah, I would have expected like one of the other ones to kind of like act the fool, like accidentally trip one or knock into them. Not necessarily, like, fight them, but, you know, like, be like, oh, sorry about that, or terribly sorry. You know, just something like that. Like, where we get Sean Connery acting like he's somebody else doing a Dutch accent or something. Or Roger doing his old, like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know, darling, yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> Darling. <laughs> yeah, like, we didn't get any of that with him, which, again, it separates him, but uh, it felt a bit different. Yeah. 
So they drive away. And it was at this point, we've talked a little bit about the music. And I would say the music overall is a very mixed bag where there was some tracks I did really like, like in the opening sequence when it was on Gibraltar. I actually really liked that music. But there was some of this stuff I just thought was really off. Nothing quite as annoying as For Your Eyes Only. And it's not like a very, it's not as nothingly as like Octopussy, but some music I liked and some of them was just a bit like, this is just kind of a bit naff. And I think a lot of it wasn't like the instrumentals or anything. I feel like some of the, the melodies and the song themselves were just not great. Where in A Few to a Kill, they were great. But I feel like some of these songs were just like, yeah, just weak, just not very good. I'm trying to think really about because I I didn't really write much about the music in my notes. The only thing I really do remember feeling is that it was just a lot of the same in terms of you you would get the you would get an instrumental version of the main theme and you'd get one with like horns and then you'd get one with a lighter instrument like a flute or something for more of like the lovey dovey scenes. It was very yeah it, it, to me it's quite similar to a view to a kill. Maybe not as good, though, because I clearly didn't write anything down that I, I liked that much. Um, although it is John Barry's last one, to point out. This was his last film he did, composing. Yeah, kind of so. For Bond. Yeah. yeah. But as you say, like, not a huge style shift, which is why I kind of say, like, it's not the instruments or anything. It's just, like, just a weaker set of songs that he wrote. Yeah. It's not his best, unfortunately. I'd have to agree. Yeah, so then this ends... well. Bond sees that the cello case has been left. Uh, as Joe mentioned, the woman was grabbed off, but the cello case was left there with the cello. So Bond grabs the cello and stays on the tram and eventually gets to the end of the line, goes into the station and goes into a toilet. I don't know how many toilets we see in this film, but we've already seen two. <laughs> so it's know. so gritty. It's so yeah. gritty and down to earth. Just toilets everywhere. Yeah, Timothy Dalton. <laughs> Dirty toilets. Dirty toilets. <laughs> Dirty Dalton, they call it. <laughs> Sweaty Sean and Dirty Dalton. <laughs> oh, Dalton. Um, so we get him going to a store with the, the case so he can check the case. And there's like a very small gag here where there's like an old man with a broom. Unfortunately, he's not a midget whistling, but it's an <laughs> old man with a broom who's like brooming outside and he's kind of like keeping an eye on what's going on in there. It doesn't really go anywhere, but... It's, it's very much one of those Bond characters, just odd character who's just checking stuff out. And it was such a comedy bit because he's like sweeping inside a public toilet, which looks yeah. weird in itself. Yeah, this bit did. I, I mean, it's kind of saying that a comedy bit didn't work. I don't know. But it's just this bit was really just strange to me. I just found that kind of annoying, if anything. Like, just let. Hey, if someone's in the toilet, in the cubicle making some weird noise, just leave them be. Maybe they're, you know, they're doing their own thing. You carry on sweeping, old man. Yeah, he's got stuff to do. But he does do the whole, like, when he gets somewhat caught, he's, like, quickly brushing afterwards. Like, oh, I'm busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't looking or anything. No, no. No. Um, so, yeah, so Bond opens up the cello case, finds the cello, and also finds a big old card inside, which is helpful, which has Kara's name and address on it. Uh, so he knows exactly where she lives. Which I'm guessing that's their... I shouldn't think about these things too much, but I feel like this film, more than ever, I was questioning the logic of it sometimes. But I guess that's there in case it's lost the cello, so someone can return it. Well, I, the thing is, is like that. Does she have two cello cases? Because that one has the gun in it. 
So can that fit a gun and a cello? Or is that a fake cello case? But then why would she be... Oh, I've just started to confuse myself. Yeah, we'll we'll move on. But yeah, I don't know. (laughs) When I was watching the film, I wasn't questioning that much. But the logic of this film, all those small nitpicky things, it's like, yeah, that's a... What's up with that? Uh, But yes, I, I... yeah, I should have explained inside the cello case is actually the gun. And Bond sees the bullet that he shot into the gun. Um, so that's a, that's quite damaged. Yeah, and also some blank bullets as well. Yes. I didn't pick that up. That was blank bullets. It was just like, look at these bullets. But luckily old James explains later that they were blanks. Yeah, yeah I'm the same. I'm, I, I don't know enough about bullets, but thankfully the, <laughs> the film does spell it out for you. Yeah. We see uh, Kara returning back from wherever she was taken with, with Pushkin back into her home. And she comes in and her flat has been trashed, uh, presumably by the KGB when they were looking for things. And as she walks in, behind her uh, is Bond. Bond has tracked her down, tracked down the address, and returns back the cello case. And... You might have to help me with kind of what they discuss in this scene because a lot of it I think I missed. But it's, you know, she's there questioning who this man is and and uh, noticed notices that he's English because she I guess she presumed it was going to be another KGB agent after her. Um, and Bond is obviously there to find out information about why she was the, you know, why she was there that night. Um, although, what generally what ends up happening is that Bond gains her trust by pretending to be a friend of Koskov's because this Kara character is uh, his girlfriend, is his lover. Um, she has this photo of him framed, and um, so she she's obviously there worrying about what's happened to him, and Bond Bond lies, basically. and Well, I don't know how much he does lie, because Koskov clearly does know Bond, but he definitely eggs it on about how much he knows about Koskov and his location and... And uses that as a tactic to gain her trust to hopefully find out more about the situation. Yes. Um, I don't know. I, I probably missed some bits in there. I think the main thing is that this Kara uh, says that Koskov's defection was a fake. Right, because of the bank, the bank bullets. Yeah, so because the bullets were blank, Bond kind of eventually puts it all together that, okay, so this is his girlfriend. So Kara got asked by uh, Koskov to play the sniper role but they were never actually going to shoot anyone because they had blanks and then he was taken back so the whole thing was basically just a fake which is when bond says okay well well he pretends to then be friends of kuskov to to gain her trust because obviously she's in in whatever's going on here and i think pushkin was asking her where kuskov was like that's the reason she was taken because pushkin was like well where is he which I think is also supposed to kind of hint at it being fake as well. Yeah. The only thing I'm having trouble now working out is, so this scene, in, the scene in, in Kara's flat ends with um, them, well, Bond wanting to go to Vienna, but why does he want to go to Vienna again? <laughs> Can't remember. Oh, I'd assume that's... Well, that's in Austria, isn't it? So it's them crossing the border. Just So just to get away from the KGB, basically. I think so. But then it does raise how did Bond get back here in the first place? <laughs> I don't know. We'll move on. We'll move on. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Bond has basically kind of gained her trust to an extent by 
promising to take her to Koskov, or Yorgi, as she calls him, or at least find out more about where he's gone. Um, so they leave, or at least Bond leaves first, to go into uh, his Aston Martin parked outside. Uh, there is also a KGB agent outside watching. Um, I think Bond did point out through the window that there's someone watching her. So yeah, they're outside keeping track. Um, after Bond comes out, so does Kara, but instead of going into the car, she goes into a phone booth and pretends to start using the phone. And just as that kind of timing happens, a tram passes by and blocks the view of the KGB agent. And once the tram moves out of the way, Bond Bond's car drives off. Although you do still see something in the phone booth. So, uh, yeah, there's clearly something going on there. Um, we do eventually find out that it's just like a... <laughs> It's just the cello case propped up with some clothes on it, but that was enough of a, a opportunity to give you know Kara time to get in the car. Is it, I did find that bit. Of, it's a little bit. Uh, I don't know. It's a, a little bit, bit cartoony, too. like yeah. the whole perfectly timed of a tram going past thing. I don't hate it, but it it doesn't really sit in the same way as the tone of the rest of this film. Sometimes little bits like this. I mean, I like that you get it all from the KGB agent's perspective and Bond kind of just drives off, but you do also straight away know that that's just just like something being dressed up in her clothes. And it's like, I guess they needed something and I'm glad they, to, you know, they need to get away. So I'm glad they had something in there and I guess they wanted to still take this more grounded approach of something a little bit more realistic, nothing too crazy, but it's still like, you know... I kind of agree. Like, I think it's the fact that you get a shot in a few minutes of the man opening the booth and you see it. Like, you probably <laughs> didn't need that bit, really. Like, I think people figured it out quite easily. Yeah, they didn't put they didn't put the best uh, the best KGB agent on that on that job, did they? No. Uh, or maybe he just wasn't wearing his glasses. I don't know. Well, he was um, the one man who didn't know who James Bond is, so I feel bad for him. Oh right, yeah. Because he should have just <laughs> yeah. recognised him. Like, if Bond? only, <laughs> yeah. That's that's James Bond. I'll just go stop him right now. End yeah, of the film. Bang. Um, before uh, that, KGB agent does spot the cello case in the phone booth. Though this is, I mentioned earlier about one of the kind of few laughs I did get in this film is this next scene where they're in the car, Bond and Kara, and uh, as they go to drive away, Kara is very insistent that she wants to get her cello back from her house. Uh, she can't leave without it. And Bond, very conscious of how they're trying to escape and you know remain undercover, is is very adamant in no, like no way, we're not going back. And so you do get like a no way from Bond and then it just hard cuts straight to her like grabbing her cello case and trying to stuff it in this car where there's not much room and it's so big. It's like, it's it's a very little thing, but it's like, you know, it's a bit of humour that doesn't rely on like a groan-worthy line. It's actually a bit of visual humour to an extent. Well, it's very quick, but did you know this film was made in the 80s? Because <laughs> if you didn't, there it is, the whole, absolutely not. No way are we ever doing that. And then cut to them doing the thing. <laughs> but luckily, yeah, no. it's not as exaggerated, you know, right? Like, because when people do the joking owl, because it's so overdone from like the 80s, it's so over the top exaggerated to kind of like poke fun of itself. That is kind of nice to see like a more standard version of it where it's not quite as hyped up and in your face. It is just a very quick comedic movement, movement and they move on. So I yeah. kind of liked it for that, because it's not that silly, exaggerated joke that you get now, nowadays. No, definitely not. And there's like a little sort of 
bit of twinkly piano music as it cuts as well. It's just uh, it's a solid it's a solid gag. I'll give it that. And then Bond's um, like, as the cherry cello's trying to fit in, he's like, "Why didn't you learn the violin?" Which is a nice <laughs> yeah. little line. Yeah. Uh, so they are driving off, um, and we're getting into like the. I was going to say, is this like really the only car chase in the film? Like, oh, I guess it's if you consider the airfield stuff. I guess yeah, like a plane chase, yeah. Um, because Bond and Kara are in the car, and the Aston Martin is it a V eight? I don't. It's the one that I have was no in idea. No time this to car. Die. If I could just before you get into it, this car felt so nothingy to me. <laughs> like when you see Aston Martin, I think of something really cool, but this was just yeah. like it never really left any impact on me. This car. You saw it briefly in Q's Q branch. Yes. Um, where there was something about, you know, it being fitted for something or other. Um, but no, it's strange because, like, I kind of would agree with you. I mean, I said before, I'm not really a, a petrol head. I'm not a big fan of cars in general. Um, so Bond cars is about the extent of what, <laughs> what I would like in terms of that. Um, but this one visually is not really that striking, Except when it was used in No Time to Die, because I think there's a the poster or the shot of Craig. It is the same car. I think it is an Aston Martin V8. I might be right in thinking that. But um, yeah, I don't know. I guess maybe kind of a bit of 80s, 80s retro nostalgia that came back for now. I guess so. It just looks so different to, like, say, the original Aston Martin and some of the other ones we've seen. Like, it strips away all that design elements. And I think the fact that it's quite... It's a very dark car as well. I think you kind of need a brighter car for it to pop. You need a silver or a red or something or a white. I think having the car be very dark, it's like makes more sense for Timothy Dalton, but it also makes it a little bit more forgettable. Like that's just a a dark sports car. It just didn't really feel like a a memorable Bond car to me. Mm. I will say though, like we're going to see its gadgets and I think some of them are quite memorable. Um, we get Bond and Kara. Yeah, Bond has on the radio. He picks up the police band and is overhearing that they're, you know, they're being looked at. Uh, their car has been like ID'd basically, and and the police are looking out for them. Um, and they eventually do get very quickly spotted by a, a police car. Um, and we see one of the first gadgets used is like a laser, <laughs> a laser coming out of the wheel. Yeah. Because his police car drives up to the side of them, and and yeah, this laser basically slices off the top of the car from the the wheelbase, and then it just slides off like in a really like over the top fashion. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that would work really, but uh, that's the first of them. We do this is one of those things where you basically see every gadget back to back to back. Um, I do want to say about go. this laser car though, it is. You know, people talk about John Glenn's pigeon fetish or whatever. <laughs> he oh. <laughs> loves separating cars out like this. Like, maybe this started happening before John Glenn, though, to be fair. I want to say maybe this wasn't him that started this. But I I feel like there's somebody on that staff whose sole job was like, right, we need to find new ways to, like, split cars up during a chase. Because <laughs> we had the a view to a kill one, right? Where it was being smashed bit to bit. And yeah. We've also had like the top of stuff just come off all the time in the Roger Moore era, just be smashed off entirely as well. Like the bus uh, back in Live and Let Die, if we all remember that film all that time ago. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, they do that again here. I don't think it works quite as well here with Timothy Dalton, but I, I didn't hate it. But yeah, they just love it. They just think it's the best thing ever. Let's find new ways to separate car pieces. And it's really not the best thing ever. It's not the best thing ever. It's, it's okay. not the best thing ever. No. Uh, <laughs> once they do that, uh, they eventually there's all these blockades being set up on the roads and uh, kind of more stuff in their way. I think Bond uses some missiles at one point to clear clear the way, like blow up a truck. Um, I can't really remember the order exactly of what happens in this car chase, so I might be getting things in the wrong order. But yeah, it eventually ends up with them having to slide, kind of let's go off-road um, onto, is it a frozen lake? Is yeah, it's a frozen lake as um, Bond's like, Takara, check the map, see where this road ends. And she's like, it ends on a lake. And then he just drives onto it. Is that when they go in the barn or is that afterwards? That they go into the barn onto the lake. Right, yeah. So they drive through a barn, but they stay in the barn. And so you just see a barn driving around on this big frozen lake. <laughs> Again, it's, it is, this is where they're getting out a lot of the silliness, I think. We've had quite a lot of grounded things so far. Well, yeah, for the most part. But they are getting a lot of like silly visual gags out of the way here, you know, the cutting the car or the laser, and then just this barn driving around, and eventually it gets like blown up. So Bond Bond drives out of it, and you just see this massive explosion of a barn behind them. Um, I think the tires get blown at one point, and I did quite like this bit where he uses the the burst, like the the tire wheel, or just like the tire uh, the wheel itself, because it's just metal now. He uses that to cut the ice and and sink a car around him kind of neat yeah i like that as well i didn't like the barn so no the so so far much. i'm okay with the car being cut with the laser and all the top coming off right the missiles are fine uh i don't like the barn i quite like the the circle yeah okay uh and then we have the skis the skis and the the wheel treads basically this is where it's been fitted to be like snow snow worthy because it does just turn into like a giant snowmobile in a way with these skis on either side of it um although they don't really last very long do they the skis thinking about it it's for one jump (laughs) (laughs) oh right yeah because then it just like plows straight into a big mound of snow doesn't it yeah huh um right yeah because they jump over it they jump over uh a road and uh, using a rocket motor they have a rocket motor as well uh which but like bursts them over this road and then like the police car behind them tries it and obviously doesn't doesn't make it and crashes in um yeah because bond has taken out all the people that chase him on the lake so there's a huge like police checkpoint or roadblock that they've set up which they hear over the radio which is why bond's like right i've got to go over this and that's when he turns on ski mode and then rockets himself over the top of them to get off the lake and go back onto the road. Right. So once he's done this, the yeah the the skis get snapped off by trees and the the car just pretty much is is out. It's just totaled by by landing in this big mound of snow. So he sets the self destruct button. Good old self destruct button. It's got to be on every gadget um, because he's being cha- like him and Kara are still being chased. Except now they're being chased by. Uh, skiers and and stuff like that and people on like snowmobiles and everything um and this is where you get like the the big kind of payoff to all of this chase where they use 
the cello case as a sledge going down the hill and Bond sort of like controlling it with the cello itself, like <laughs> almost as a ski thing, you know, pointing it left and right and pivoting it. And uh, it's getting all shot at. And the, like, yeah, at one point the, the cello gets a bullet hole in it. And uh, it's um, it's definitely like a great visual end to this this chase where they yeah they've just like ditched the gadgets and they're now literally just going on a sledge basically um and i do like how this ends where they just you know they they only just make it over the border basically um by like sliding under it and bond throws up the cello and catches it as they go over the pole and say nothing to declare as they're going past the the border check and uh yeah it's um there's you know the 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 car gadget stuff is a bit, mm, but I did like the cello stuff with the, the the sledge. I didn't mind it at the time, but now that I'm talking or you're talking about it and I'm thinking about it, I'm like, actually, that sounds really stupid. <laughs> it um, was stupid, but it was I, I fun. I didn't mind it at the time, though. It is very cartoony, though, because we literally have, because they're trying to get to Austria to get to Vienna, and we have a hill that at the bottom of the hill is the checkpoint, like, is the border for Austria. And we have Bond and Kara on a cello case sliding down with, like, the whole, like, police force chasing them, the Czech police force, and tanks, because they've got, like, these mini tanks that are shooting at them as well. Um, And it is a bit silly having them come down the hill and just slide under. So I didn't really dislike it. I think maybe they did go a little bit too far. I don't think, though, that Timothy Dalton can't pull off, like, comedic chases. Like, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, they should have had it be more grounded and just have a little drive about and keep it back. Like, I think it makes sense to still have the gadgets and still have some fun with these. Like, that, to me, is cool. It's just, uh, I don't think it's the most strongest one. Although it also doesn't help that. It's snow again, guys. It's skiing again. It is again. more snow. Yeah. I can't believe they're doing it again. <laughs> Did Octopussy it, had... It didn't, did it? Um, no. But it's like, if we look at the Bond film, it's like, what, Spy Who Loved Me did, Moonraker didn't, For Your Eyes Only did, Octopussy didn't, A Few to a Kill did, and The Living Daylights did. It's like, they probably... If they were going by their own pattern, they would have taken a, a film off. So, it wasn't really bad, but I wasn't super into it either. John Glenn clearly just loves skiing. She uses this as an opportunity to go. God, he's got such a list, doesn't he, of things he's into. <laughs> yeah. What a list he really he does. Has. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he definitely left his mark on the series, didn't yeah. he? He's left something. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode 15 of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Joe next time where Bond confronts Pushkin, Kara finds out the truth, all leading to the big battle at the airfield in Afghanistan. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you for part two.